The following sermon was delivered to Christ Central Church in order to further our knowledge and adoration of who God is. We pray that it displays the hope found in Christ and strengthens your faith in Him. If you've been with us over the past few weeks, you know that we have been in the book of Hebrews. And if you haven't been with us over the past few weeks, don't worry, we've only gone through chapter one. But this morning, we get to chapter 2, and it's, it's a little different than chapter 1. In fact, it's, it's a lot different. Chapter 2 begins with the first four verses as a warning, which is the first of five warning passages in the book of Hebrews. The first one we encounter, but not the last one that we will encounter. And this warning is not like a lot of the warnings that we have today. When you think about warnings today, you think maybe of a warning label, or you eat a bag of beef jerky and you see the do not eat this little packet of silica in there, as if, as if we needed that warning. Right? Most warnings today seem superfluous. Do they, should they be there? Do we, in fact, it, it leads us to question, why are they there? You get served a cup of coffee that's hot, and it says, warning, hot. And you're like, that's how I ordered it. I, I don't want cold coffee. Why do we need all these warnings that seem so pointless? This one is not pointless. This one is not pointless. And as we've been going through Hebrews chapter 1, you begin to question, where is the author going with all of this? Is it like when my kids tell this long, drawn-out story, and they spare no detail, they, no stone unturned, the play by play by play by play, only to get to the very end, and you find that virtually all of what came before could have been left out. It wasn't relevant. It didn't really matter. That is not the case. For the book of Hebrews, yes, there has, has been a lot of detail already through chapter 1. We've, we've worked our, our way slowly and steadily through this over the past couple of months. And here is a quick recap of the detail. Begins with the, a great announcement that in these last days, God has spoken to us as he never has spoken to us before by his son. And who is this son? He is the heir of all things. The world was created through him. He is the radiance of God's glory, the exact imprint of God's nature. By the word of his power, the entire universe is upheld. His blood has made real, actual purification for sins. This work is finished. We know this because he is seated at the right hand of the Father with a more excellent name than any, other, than any angel has ever been given. No angel has ever been called the begotten son. No angel has ever rightly received worship. No angel has ever been given an eternal throne. No angel has ever been identified as the author of creation. No angel has ever been given a seat at God's right hand, a front row view to God's conquest of kingdom rebels. No, but all these things are true of the son. That's 
what chapter 1 is about. That's how the letter starts. But where is the author going with all of this? Does it really take all of this detail? In one sense, that's for you to decide. Do you think that all of this matters? But in our passage today, the author tells us why he thinks it matters, why he thinks this is necessary. He supplies us with this word at the very beginning. Therefore, therefore, if you spent much time studying the scriptures, you know that this word is very important. It tells us that what has come before, we're about to understand the purpose, the meaning, the weight, the application. This is the moment we've been building up to. This is the moment where the author has taken all of this time to remind us of Jesus' greatness, and now he's going to tell us what to do with it all. It better be good. Pay attention. Pay attention. That's where he lands. Let's read Hebrews 2, verses 1 to 4. Therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It was declared at first by the Lord, and it was attested to us by those who heard while God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by the gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. Would you bow with me? Father, this passage is so immediately apparent of how we should be praying right now. Would you help us pay attention? Would you help all of us give heed to the message we have heard and hear today. In Christ's name, amen. It sounds simple, right? It sounds simple, but this is hard. And we know it's hard because today we have more vying for our attention than any generation has ever had in the past. Notifications, advertisements, news outlets, social media, Colleges, coaches, you, you name it. It's hard to imagine going longer than a few minutes before something else is grabbing your chin and aiming your focus somewhere else. Nevertheless, this is where the author of Hebrews goes. And after an introduction like we've heard throughout the first chapter, we better pay attention. We better pay attention. This, this exhortation in verses 1 to 4, it comes clearly as a, as a section but we will break this up into three different sections to help us understand what he's saying. The first part, we see a grave warning. A grave warning. Secondly, we're going to look at guaranteed wages. Guaranteed wages. And lastly, what we're going to see, gracious witnesses. God's gracious witnesses. A grave warning. This is a grave warning, and you, you can sense this in his words. We must, we must pay much closer attention. 
lest we drift away. That we, we must is this three-letter Greek word. We see a lot over, uh, throughout Scripture. It's often translated, it is necessary. It is necessary to pay much closer attention. And hopefully we're going to start to understand why it took so long to get to this point. The intricacy of the exposition, the detail in the discussion, matches the weight of the warning. The weight of the warning. It's grave. So what exactly, as he says, pay attention, what are we paying attention to? To what we have heard. To what we have heard. This, this phrase picks up what we've read in the very first two verses in Hebrews chapter 1. That long ago, many times, in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he's spoken to us by his son. So we are paying attention to what we have heard. What have we heard is what God has spoken to us through his son. See the difference there as Hebrews, the author of Hebrews will often make a comparison of one thing to another. The difference is that originally God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. Now he has spoken to us. And it's different not just because we are the audience now, it's also different because the one addressing us is a much bigger deal than the prophets. It's his son. His son is the speaker. He's speaking to us through his son. And the question the author has for us is, are we a captive audience? So what does it look like to pay attention to what we've heard? Is it just a matter of, of knowing what the son has said, as if the words going into our ears is all that's required? I think that you, you probably know that this is not what the author is talking about because there's a long biblical tradition of using this verb to hear or to listen. It's one of the Bible's favorites. Hearing has always been about more than just listening to the sound of something. He who has ears, let him hear. Whenever Jesus says this, uh, I suspect that the majority, virtually all of his audience that's there listening has functioning ears. This isn't about having body organs that work properly. True hearing, what we're called to do to pay attention, to hear, is much deeper than that. We see this in Scripture all over, the emphasis on hearing being much deeper than just what our ears do. Exodus 19, verses 7 to 9, says this, So Moses came and called the elders of the people and set before them all these words that the Lord had commanded him. And all the people answered together and said, All that the Lord has spoken, we will do. And Moses reported that the words, and Moses reported the words of the people to the Lord. And the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I'm coming to you in a thick cloud, that the people may hear when I speak with you, and may also believe you forever. Hearing is paired up with belief, faith in this passage. Again, in Deuteronomy 30, 15 to 18, we see another aspect of what it means to hear. See, I've said before you today, life and good, death and evil. If you obey the commandments of the Lord your God that I command you today, by loving the Lord your God, by walking in his ways and by keeping his commandments, his statutes and his rules, then you shall live and multiply and the Lord your God will bless you in the land that you are entering to take possession of it. But if your heart, see the emphasis on heart, turns away, 
and you will not hear, but are drawn away to worship other gods and serve them. I declare to you today that you shall surely perish. You shall not live long in the land that you are going over the Jordan to enter and possess. See, the author of Hebrews is an is a Old Testament scholar. And his warning here sounds a lot like the language of the Old Testament. We shouldn't be surprised to find this, that he's, he talks about your hearts being turned away, your ears being turned off, you being drawn away to worship other gods. When we get to this language of pay attention, pay much closer attention, lest you, be, lest you drift away. John 8, 47 says it like this. Who is of God hears the words of God. The reason why you do not hear them is that you are not of God. And lastly, Romans 10, 17. Faith comes from hearing and hearing from the word of Christ. When we think about hearing, listening to the word of God, it is much more than just taking attendance to who has actually taken in these words. But it's who believes, it's who has faith, it's who heart, whose heart is turned towards God and who is not drawn away but drawn near. That's what the author is telling us, that to hear is to believe and he warns us what happens if we don't. We drift away. We drift away. This is a pretty terrifying warning because of the subtle nature of what it means to drift. When things drift, you, you often don't even realize it's happening. Have you ever been sleepy at the wheel late at night? And when you, when you close your eyes, you don't immediately turn the wheel this way. You just maybe this much. And that is enough to take you off the road. Have you ever been walking through a crowd and with your, your children or younger people in your family? Maybe you've been at the store, a theme park, the ball field, and you're, you're navigating the crowd together as a family. You go this way, then you go that way, and then you have to take a turn. So you turn to your family and you say, come on, it's over here. And everybody turns except for that one kid. <laughs> and even though he's super cute and very lovable, he's completely clueless. He's off in his own little world. He obviously, he may have heard the words, but he didn't listen. And he just keeps following the rest of the crowd. And if, if you're a parent like me, you just kind of stand there and watch to see how far he's going to go. If you're a good parent, then you say, hey, hey, wait, come over here. <laughs> and if you're, a, the, if you're just like your child and you're the clueless parent, then you don't even know they're gone. <laughs> but step after step after step, incrementally, you get further away from, your supposed, from where you're supposed to be. You drift when you aren't paying attention. And there's a word that we'll, we'll jump down to in verse 3 that the author uses here to describe the opposite of paying attention. If drifting is the result of not paying attention, there's a word here the author uses that is the opposite of what do we do if we're not paying attention? We're neglecting. We're neglecting. 
Verse 3 says, How shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? What does it mean to neglect? Well, it is the opposite of, of paying attention. It's to be careless about something. We've all been guilty of this. Some things we have to neglect. By the, by the virtue of our human limitations, we don't have enough time in the day to keep everything in proper order to do all things that are good. We have to neglect. But neglect carries with it the sense of this is something you should be paying attention to. We have to apportion our time to various areas. And that could look different depending on who you are, depending on what age you are or your responsibilities. But to neglect something in this way the scriptures are using it is something that everybody should be prioritizing. Everybody should be paying attention to, and yet they don't. We don't. This is often used in in terms of relationships. Maybe friends you had in high school, and you've, you've grown apart. You've neglected to text, to call, to meet up. I was just talking to Rustin beforehand that through seminary, I was a, a good student in Hebrew. I have neglected, um, sorry professors, I have neglected my Hebrew studies. I have drifted far away. Um, luck, luckily not so much on, on the Greek side, but um, it's, it's easy to drift away. As you neglect something, it is not giving it the proper attention and in this context, to neglect, he's talking about being careless about heeding the message of Jesus, the Son. It's when you hear the gospel, you know all the right answers, you even might be favorable to it, but it doesn't have much of your concern. And it's easy to ignore for you. Because remember, the audience, we, we may not know exactly who wrote Hebrews or to whom it was written, but we understand from what's written here, that it was written to a community of faith. These are people in the church community. This is the fellowship of believers. They, they're a part of it now, or they have been very recently. This is, this is us. This is the congregation. And his concern in this passage is not with those who have just rejected the gospel and said, I don't believe in Christ, don't want to, don't want to hear it. It's to those who have neglected it. And it's hard not to hear the similarity between this passage and this warning and the parable of the sower, right? And in particular, the third category of soil, Mark 4, 7, other seed fell among thorns. This is the thorny soil, which grew up and choked the plants so that they did not bear grain. Neglect is what happens when the gospel springs up but the garden is neglected. Therefore, it doesn't last. Have you ever planted something? And when you first plant it, you're watering it every day. Then it goes to every other day. And then you're lucky if you do it once a week. Until one day, the thought pops up in your, in your mind and you say, oh, I haven't watered that in a long time. And you go out there and it no longer exists. It's not there. You say, well, you didn't mean to kill it. It wasn't wasn't purposeful. 
You just didn't take the time to care for it. The, the, the rest of, in this parable of the sword, the rest of what's in the garden are thorns. They, hear, hear me, hear me. Thorns do not need tending. They don't. They do not need special attention. They flourish naturally. Likewise, in the garden of our hearts, we don't have to care for our greediness. Those weeds will flourish on their own. We don't have to tend to our selfishness. Those thorns will thrive in any soil. But the gospel, we must pay much more attention to it or it will be choked out by the thorns. That's, that's the warning. That's what we're called not to do. But why do we neglect? It's worth asking the question. And a lot of times it's morally neutral to our eyes. What I mean by that is that our neglect of the gospel doesn't look like sin on the outside. It's prioritizing your favorite shows over prayer. It's choosing sports over Sunday gatherings. It's working overtime, giving more attention to material wealth, to the neglect of spiritual growth. It's Attention is placed everywhere else except for the gospel. But even if it's morally neutral, it's eternally dangerous. Eternally dangerous. As I was thinking about this, what is just such a good biblical picture of neglect? And uh, at BCM, the campus ministry at Montevallo this week, we read Luke 16's parable of the rich man and Lazarus. And I just thought, this is it. This is it. This is the whole story in parable form. So we'll read it again. There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day. And ate, and at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in the water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that you are in, that you are in, that you in your lifetime received your good things, and Lazarus in, in like manner did bad things. But now he is comforted here, and you are in anguish. And besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed, in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able, and none may cross from there to us. And he said, Then I beg you, Father, to send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, so that he may warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment. But Abraham said, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he said, no, Father Abraham, but if, if someone goes from the dead, they will repent. He said to him, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. This parable shows us why we neglect clothed in purple, fine linen, feasted sumptuously every day. It shows the danger of what happens when we, we neglect we do not hear, and it shows 
the punishment for those who do neglect. He's eternal in anguish and torment. This, this is not, this parable is not someone who had never heard the gospel before. This is someone who neglected the, mes- the message for the sake of comfortable worldly pleasures. And the author of Hebrews is warning us, do not let this be you. Do not let this be you. The reason why this warning is so grave is because our second point, guaranteed wages. For since, verse two, for since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? So here's his reasoning. He gives a, uh, a command, an exhortation, pay much closer attention. Then he gives us the, the warning, lest you drift away. And here's the reason. Here, here's his, what he, how he backs up this warning. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, and every transgression and disobedience received a just retribution. There's two parts. The first one, the message proved to be true, guaranteed. It's guaranteed. What what is the message that he's talking about? This is the one declared by angels. Declared by angels. If that's uh, clear as mud, let's look at a few verses to see what he's talking about. Acts 7, verse 53. Stephen's uh, sermon, his, his sermon before he's martyred. He addresses them as you who received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. So declared by angels, what is the message? Was the law. We see it again in Galatians 3, 19. Why then the law? It was put in, it was added because of transgressions until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made. It was put in place through angels by an intermediary. And and you may be saying, well, um, this is what John 1, 17 says, that the law came through Moses, but now it's saying angels. And there's... A, a number of verses, we, we just read a couple of them. There's another one that shows that the tradition, the biblical tra- tradition is that angels were involved in the giving of the law. Deuteronomy 33.2. Uh, the Lord came from Sinai and dawned from Sarah upon us. He shone forth from Mount Paran. He came from the ten thousands of holy ones with flaming fire at his right hand. And you say, what did that have anything to do with Angels perhaps the 10,000s of holy ones. And, and also, you see a, a footnote, perhaps, in, in your Bible, where the Hebrew there is difficult to translate. Uh, that is, that's from the, the Masoretic text, and there is a, uh, a copy of the Hebrew Old Testament that's Greek. It's called the Septuagint. If you ever see an LXX, the number for 70, that's the Septuagint. And in the Septuagint, it translates this word that is uncertain as angels. It translates, translates it as angels. I'm grateful for the, the scholars who do this kind of work, as I just admitted to the fact that I'm not very good at Hebrew. Angels, that angels were with the Lord as he gave the law through the intermediary of Moses. So it's, it's, a, it's a long-winded way of saying the message that was given beforehand that proved to be reliable was the giving of the law. 
it proved to be reliable. How so? Because everything the Lord spoke came true. Everything the Lord spoke came true. And how do we know that? That it was guaranteed because of the wages that the Lord paid the people. We think of wages. Uh, biblically, you, you, you may just think of uh, Romans 6, 23, the wages of sin is, is death. But wages are, are fairly neutral. You think of your wage, you may think of what you, you make at your job, which is a positive thing. Hopefully it's positive. If not, change jobs. It, it's not accomplishing its purpose. But wages is whatever you're paid that's just and due and proper. So every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution. That word, retribution or recompense, where you are compensated for what you have done. Here, it is negative because of these two words that come before, transgression and disobedience. Transgression and disobedience. A transgression is a willful breaking of the law. It's, it's overstepping the bounds, crossing the line. Disobedience here, I, I, I think that the word disobedience is, is correct. The translation is right. But it's helpful to point out that the root word in the Greek has the word to hear at it. It's, it's to hear contrarily. So when you hear something, you say, no. No, I, I mean, I heard you, but I'm not going to do that. It's failing to listen. It's intentionally ignoring what you've heard. I'm not, I'm not interested in listening to you. This is disobedience. It's to hear wrongly, intentionally. We see this in Romans 5, 19, the same word. For as by the one man's disobedience, same word, the many were made sinners. Who is he talking about? Adam. One man's disobedience. And what did Adam do? He heard the word of the Lord. But did he hear? No. He disobeyed. Every transgression and disobedience received a just retribution. This is where we are reminded that God sounds harsh. But to penalize sin, to punish disobedience in the terms of the law is just is right, is what he should, it's what he should be doing. We see so many examples of this that we could go through in the Old Testament. I think of um, the law uh, given to not touch the ark. And as they're carrying it and they stumble and Uzzah touches the ark and the Lord kills him. Is it harsh? Depends on how we view God's holiness. We think of Nadab and Abihu, who were sons of Aaron, priests in the temple, and they're doing their priestly duties, but they're doing them in the ways that they want to do them. They are ignoring the law of God, and what does God do? He takes their life. If that doesn't prove to you that God is serious about the giving of the law, that doesn't prove to you that we better pay attention. I, I'm not sure what will. Why does the author of Hebrews say that we should pay much greater attention? The importance of this message can be evaluated by the status of the messenger. 
This is the difference between, in the original message of the law, a king sending his messenger to, to deliver the message versus a king coming himself. Which one would be more offensive to disobey? When God comes himself to deliver this message through his son, we better pay attention. I heard one preacher say it like this. With great revelation comes greater responsibility. With greater revelation comes greater responsibility. The message of the son is greater. The message of the son is greater. We should listen because how shall we escape such a great salvation? The implied answer is we won't. How shall we escape? Forget it. It's impossible. There will be no escape. But why, why is he saying that? Well, because he knows the Old Testament, as we just talked about. He knows that God's uh, law was given with the warning of, if you disobey, you will disinherit the land. And they're sitting under Rome, the Roman rule right now in exile. God does not fail to judge sin. And he says there is no escape, especially when the message is greater. For the first message, the hearers were warned about disobedience. Now the stakes are even higher. We see this, Hebrews 12, verses 25 to 26. This is the most similar passage to the one today that comes later. He says, see that you do not refuse him who is speaking. For if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. Here's why the stakes are higher. At that time, his voice shook the earth, but now he has promised yet once more, I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. And we'll preach that passage when the time comes, but it helps to understand that the stakes are higher. Retribution now will be like what it was in the past, but far more terrifying. And here, as we get to our last point, is where I just want to offer a helpful corrective to my own heart and possibly to yours as well. This is what the, the most common conception of Old Testament God versus New Testament God is today. Back then, God was angry. He was mean. He was vindictive. I mean, just, just listen to the way he talks in the Old Testament, the things he does to people. I'm so glad I'm part of the New Testament. I'm so glad I'm under the new covenant. Is that correct? In one sense, I understand. We, we've already quoted John 1, 17. The law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Which one sounds better? Grace and truth. Grace and truth. And in even further, the gospel, this new covenant, is much more comfortable than the old covenant. No dietary laws. Connor says, thank you for bacon, Lord. Because <laughs> he literally says that a lot. I mean, to me. No sacrificial system. Nobody walked in here with birds or a lamb or a bull. There is no altar that we're going to be sacrificing anything on today. But the argument that the author of Hebrews is making is that this gospel, even though it's a gospel of grace, it comes with much more accountability, much more accountability. 
And here's the warning in scriptural form. Romans 2. Do you presume presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. This is why we neglect. Because when we sin, so often we don't immediately see the penalty for it. How many times have you caught a child doing something they're not supposed to be doing and they think they've gotten away with it? They think they're so slick and you watch the entire thing and you just say, it may not be the exact moment that we need to talk about this and you'll be punished. But, you, but we, we will talk about this. You know, it's the, you're getting a spanking when we get home kind of talk. Do not think just because there has been just retribution in the past that God, the God of grace, because he has sent Christ, that he doesn't care about sin anymore. And that he's not taking it seriously. Church, there will be a day of God's wrath. But here's why the author says pay attention. Because what is it? We're going to pay attention to what we have heard. What have we heard? Such great salvation. Such great salvation. Why is it great? It's great because the punishment that we're spared from is not just exile. It's not just physical death. It is eternal death. It's great because of the timing. These are the last days and there will not be another chance. It's great because the messenger and the savior, it is God himself who has come. Church, it's a grave warning. We are guaranteed wages Let us heed God's gracious witness. The last verse, it was declared at first by the Lord. It was attested to us by those who heard. While God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles, by gifts of the Holy Spirit, distributed according to his will. I'll be the first to admit that these warning passages are heavy. They're hard. But this verse, especially verse 4, reminds us that we have a gracious God, a gracious God. What more could he do to convince us, to persuade us to listen to this message? He spoke by his son in verse three, declared at first by the Lord. He raised up disciples to proclaim this message. It was attested to us by those who heard. And he's displayed the power of the message through miracles and gifts. This is, the, this is the point of miracles. This is the point of gifts. To accompany the message and give it credibility. The signs and wonders were visible displays of the power of God and the reliability of his messengers. The miracles aren't the point. That's not the salvation. The miracles point to the message of salvation. And this little phrase at the beginning of verse 4, while God also bore witness. 
while God also bore witness. The author was stretched for vocabulary. It's the only time we see this word used in the New Testament. God joining together with his son, with the disciples, to bear witness about this message. And this helps us remember that it is our God who is bringing about salvation. This is not the disciples have figured out the cure to sin. This is not the disciples have figured out a way to escape God's wrath, and they're going to share it with everybody. The disciples have received this message and now proclaim it to us because God has given them the message. This is a gracious God who witnesses to us. So we must pay more attention because God has demonstrated the great importance of this message in all of these ways according to his will. I hear the rings of 2 Peter 3, 9. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. There is an aspect of God's will where he desires all to come to repentance. That's what he's calling us to this morning. So how do we know if we are hearing? How do we know if we're drifting away? Rely on your brothers and sisters. Be in a church family who will tell you, who will not call you out in a way that is um, mean-hearted, mean-spirited, but to speak truth and love. How do we know if we are giving attention above all else to paying much more closer attention to the gospel and nothing else? Are you prioritizing the things of God in his word, in prayer? Usually when we talk about neglect, our minds immediately go to prayer because it is so easy to do so. Do you love his word? Are you carefully heeding it? Church, the, the application of this, this passage is to, to cherish the gospel, to cherish it, and do not neglect it, to cherish it. That is the number one thing as I minister at the University of Montevallo and talk to college students all the time. I've said this before. Almost the, the number one thing I look for is, what is your opinion of the word of God? And that says so much. Not do you understand every bit of it, right? Not can you read Greek and Hebrew, do you love it? Are you paying attention to it? Do you understand the weight and importance of it? Let us not neglect the message so that we might not drift away, but let us cherish such great salvation. Would you bow with me? The last chapter of the book of Hebrews reminds us, Lord, that you are the same yesterday, today, and forever. The Old Testament is not big, meanie God. And the New Testament is, oh, God has entered his grandparent stage and is now so sweet. But God, you are gracious. When you proclaim your name to Moses, you say, Lord, the Lord, gracious, slow to anger. You've always been this way. 
from the moment we sinned. And you promised that the seed, the woman, would crush the head of the serpent. You displayed grace. May we see your grace even in these grave warnings. May we trust in the message of such great salvation. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this Christ Central Church sermon series. To find our gathering location and more sermons, visit ChristCentralChurch.net.